You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Scribner, publisher of Hymns of the Republic, the story of the final year of the Civil War, by Pulitzer Prize finalist S.C. Gwynn. Podcast listeners will be familiar with Gwynn's name as we've previously recommended his biography of Stonewall Jackson, Rebel Yell. Here, with his new book, Hymns of the Republic, Gwyn has put together a brilliantly told narrative looking at the fourth and final year of the Civil War. One of our favorite Civil War authors, Peter Cousins, says, With Hymns of the Republic, S.C. Gwynn brings the final year of the Civil War to life in the fashion of literary giants Shelby Foote and Bruce Catton. Well, that's high praise indeed. So, Hymns of the Republic is on sale now in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook. Pick up your copy today. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 303 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. As y'all recall, when we left off last time, it was early June 1863, and Joe Hooker was on the horns of a dilemma. Hooker had problems because all the signs seemed to indicate that the Confederate Army, or at least part of it, was on the move marching away from Fredericksburg. Hooker's solution was to make an attack across the Rappahannock River, overwhelm whatever rebel force was still at Fredericksburg, then advance toward Richmond, threatening the Confederate capital city. But from Washington, Abraham Lincoln and General-in-Chief Henry Halleck vetoed that idea. They were afraid Hooker would get caught half over the river, held up by the Confederates entrenched at Fredericksburg, while the part of Lee's army that was on the move might cross the Rappahannock upriver and then fall upon Hooker's rear. In Lincoln's colorful, homespun way of putting things, this would leave Hooker, quote, like an ox jumped half over a fence and liable to be torn by dogs without a fair chance to gore one way or kick the other. Lincoln wanted the destruction of the Confederate Army, and not the capture of Richmond, to be Hooker's objective. So, from Washington, the President and Halleck pressured Hooker to match the enemy's movement to the West. 
With Lee on the move, Lincoln's advice was to, quote, follow on his flank and on his inside track. That sounded good, but without enough information about Lee's movements to get a good idea of the enemy commander's intentions, Hooker didn't believe he ought to move away from Fredericksburg until he knew how to best move to counter Lee's plans. As we pointed out last time, it's pretty obvious when you say it out loud, but Hooker's dilemma, put very simply, was that he didn't know what Lee intended to do. Would the rebel commander make a short lunge designed to get around Hooker's right flank and place the Confederate Army between the Army of the Potomac and Washington? Or would it be a movement farther to the west, which would let Lee cross the upper Potomac and strike into Maryland, and possibly up into Pennsylvania? And so, with Hooker on the horns of that dilemma, that's where we left off at the end of the last show. Without enough information about Lee's movements to get a good idea of the enemy commander's intentions, Hooker didn't believe he ought to start off in pursuit until he knew how to best move to counter Lee's plans. A fellow named Thomas Ryan has written a book titled Spies, Scouts, and Secrets in the Gettysburg Campaign. It's subtitled How the Critical Role of Intelligence Impacted the Outcome of Lee's Invasion of the North, June to July, 1863. In the introduction to his book, Ryan shares a quote that we think hits the nail on the head as far as pointing out just how vitally important it was to both Robert E. Lee and Joe Hooker to have good information about what their opponent was doing. And so here's the quote. Information in regard to the enemy is the indispensable basis of all military plans. We think that bears repeating, so here it is again. Information in regard to the enemy is the indispensable basis of all military plans. In other words, as a military commander, you base your plans, whether for the offensive or defensive, not just on the knowledge you possess about your own force, but you also base your plans on the information you have about the enemy's strength, position, activities, and intentions. Put that way, you can see why it would be so vitally important for a military commander to have good, reliable information about the enemy's strength, position, activities, and intentions. Because in the absence of such information, or if the information you have is wrong, then your own plans, whether to attack or defend, would be flawed, because your plans wouldn't be addressing the true situation. This is important because in the military, flawed planning gets people killed. Specifically, here for our discussion with regard to the commanding general of an army, acquiring good information about the enemy, or lacking good information about the enemy, might just mean the difference between winning or losing a battle. 
One of George McClellan's first actions on taking command of the Army of the Potomac in July 1861 was to hire the Chicago detective, Alan Pinkerton, as his personal intelligence chief. However, when Pinkerton arrived in Washington, he found that Little Mac had already compiled a count, a huge overcount, of the Confederate Army facing him. Well, Pinkerton knew which side of his bread was buttered, and so he gave no thought to contradicting his boss's delusions. That meant that for the next 16 months, Pinkerton furnished, quote-unquote, general estimates of the rebel army's size that were two or three times its actual numbers. This was just what McClellan expected to hear, and his naturally cautious nature grew ultra-cautious. When Abraham Lincoln finally sacked Little Mac in November 1862, Pinkerton departed with him, leaving the Army of the Potomac without the services of an intelligence arm. As things stood, though, this wasn't necessarily a bad thing, since the McClellan-Pinkerton era had furnished the worst sort of precedent for intelligence gathering. You see, Pinkerton's close-held system had relied on spies and on interrogation of those from the other side, that is, deserters, prisoners, refugees, contrabands. And this raw data, unsorted, unevaluated, unreliable, went directly to McClellan. Comparatively little intelligence came from other sources, such as Federal Cavalry or Union Army signalmen, who might be manning lookout posts watching for enemy activity. It took Joe Hooker to turn matters around with the BMI, the Bureau of Military Information. The BMI was designed to collect, collate, and evaluate intelligence from all sources for the Army commander's use. Robert E. Lee didn't have anything like the BMI. He didn't even have an intelligence officer on his staff. But he did have his cavalry chief, Jeb Stewart. Stewart was a master at using cavalry for intelligence gathering, and Lee depended on him to paint a true picture of the enemy in every campaign before Gettysburg, and Stewart didn't disappoint. Lee also learned a lot of valuable information from northern newspapers and from spies and other southern loyalists when he was operating in Virginia. However, operating in Pennsylvania, Lee would lose those sources, and he would, therefore, become more dependent than ever on Stuart and his cavalry. When Hooker replaced Ambrose Burnside as commander of the Army of the Potomac in early 1863, he issued orders for the establishment of a dedicated military intelligence unit. This new organization was the BMI, the Bureau of Military Information. At the head of the BMI was 35-year-old Colonel George Sharp, a well-schooled New York lawyer and veteran regimental commander who was fluent in several languages. With regard to the information about the enemy that came into Army headquarters before the creation of the Bureau, there had been no systematic means of sorting through the useful from the useless. 
but now an important part of Sharp and his staff's mission was to organize the intelligence from dozens of various sources, compare the information they provided, and weigh the accuracy of the material, all while looking for patterns that might reveal enemy intentions. To be sure, the system didn't always work perfectly during the Gettysburg campaign. But still, overall, thanks to the BMI, the commander of the Army of the Potomac, first Hooker and then George Meade, was better informed than was Robert E. Lee. As early as June 4th, the day after the 1st Confederate unit marched away from Fredericksburg, Sharp was reporting, quote, There is considerable movement of the enemy. Their camps are disappearing at some points. Sharp also reported that a rebel deserter said the men of Lee's army had been warned to prepare for a, quote, campaign of long marches and hard fighting. As we talked about in the last episode, Hooker reacted quickly to this news by throwing a pair of pontoon bridges across the Rappahannock just below Fredericksburg and pushing a division across the river. But with Lincoln and Halleck refusing to support his plan to strike across the Rappahannock in force, Hooker knew he couldn't make a major attack across the river and instead had to content himself with simply maintaining his bridgehead on the enemy side of the Rappahannock. While Hooker was trying to divine Lee's intentions, his thoughts turned more and more to the intelligence that had been accumulating regarding a concentration of the rebel cavalry under Jeb Stuart at Culpeper Courthouse. The Confederate horsemen were gathering at Culpeper, so the stories went, in preparation for a big raid of some sort. In his book on Gettysburg, Stephen Sears writes that the rumor of a cavalry raid was actually planted by the rebels to distract the Federals from the movement of Lee's infantry. But in any case, the news that Stuart was preparing for another big raid suited Hooker perfectly since it offered him an opportunity to take some action. Lincoln and Halleck may have vetoed his idea of crossing the Rappahannock in force at Fredericksburg, but surely, Hooker reasoned, there would be no objection from Washington if he sent the Federal cavalry upriver to Culpeper to launch a preemptive strike against the rebel horsemen. And so Hooker told Lincoln that if Jeb Stewart intended making mischief with one of his raids, then it was his, Hooker's, quote, great desire to bust it up before it got fairly underway. Ever since taking command of the army, Joe Hooker had been trying to inject some backbone into the Union cavalry. In March, he ordered the Federal horsemen under Major General George Stoneman's command to, quote, attack and rout or destroy Fitz Lee's brigade of rebel cavalry in the vicinity of Kelly's Ford on the Rappahannock. Although Stoneman failed to press the battle to a successful conclusion, the battle at Kelly's Ford on St. Patrick's Day, 1863, had at least demonstrated that the Federal cavalry was coming of age because where before the Union horsemen had time and again been roughly handled by their rebel counterparts, at Kelly's Ford, the Federal troopers had demonstrated they could stand toe-to-toe with the enemy and give as good as they got. And so now, Hooker decided to repeat Kelly's Ford, but on a grander scale. 
If Jeb Stewart was planning one of his big raids, then Hooker intended to bust it up before it got started, and so he issued orders on June 7th that would send the Federal Cavalry, bolstered by about 3,000 Union infantry, across the Rappahannock to, quote, disperse and destroy the rebel force assembled in the vicinity of Culpeper. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So far, we've talked about the importance of intelligence-gathering activities, that is, activities designed to gather information about the enemy. But as any fan of John le Carre's novels knows, there's also counterintelligence. And put very simply, counterintelligence includes activities designed to not only protect your own army, against enemy attempts to gather information about it, but counterintelligence also includes deception, that is, activities aimed at purposefully misleading the enemy about your army's strength or intentions. Well, this ties into our discussion because, remember, we said a moment ago that according to Stephen Sears, the rumor of a big cavalry raid was actually planted by the rebels in order to distract the Federals from the movement of Lee's infantry. And here, regarding the concentration of Confederate horsemen at Culpeper, George Sharp, the usually perceptive head of the BMI, badly misread the situation. He believed the rumors that Jeb Stewart was preparing for a big cavalry raid when, in fact, the rebel horsemen were gathering in advance of the Army of Northern Virginia's strike up into Pennsylvania. Not only that, but at the same time, Sharp predicted that Robert E. Lee's infantry, most of which he believed to be still at Fredericksburg, would soon, quote, fall back upon Richmond and thence reinforce their armies in the West, end quote. So here, Sharp was wrong on both counts, wrong about why the rebel horsemen were concentrating at Culpeper, 
and wrong about what Lee would be doing with the Confederate infantry. Nevertheless, Joe Hooker sent Sharp's assessment to Washington, along with the note saying he intended to launch a preemptive strike to bust up the concentration of rebel cavalry at Culpeper. By the early summer of 1863, 30-year-old Jeb Stewart was already a living legend. He was an 1854 graduate of West Point, where the Commandant, Robert E. Lee, came to know the young man well. He earned the unflattering nickname Beauty during his time at the Academy for his pronounced underbite and weak chin, but he was popular with his fellow cadets. Upon graduating, Stewart was initially assigned to the Regiment of Mounted Rifles and saw service on the Texas frontier before transferring to the 1st U.S. Cavalry Regiment, which was trying to keep the peace between pro-slavery and abolitionist forces in bleeding Kansas. During his service in Kansas, Stewart had several encounters with the notorious John Brown. In 1855, Stewart met and married Flora Cook, the daughter of the legendary cavalry commander, Colonel Philip St. George Cook. Then in October 1859, Stewart happened to be back east, in Washington, D.C., on business, and ended up serving as volunteer aide to Robert E. Lee in the capture of John Brown at Harper's Ferry. When Virginia seceded in 1861, Stewart resigned his commission and followed his native state into the Confederacy. He was given the rank of infantry colonel, but his commanding officer, one Thomas Jonathan Jackson, immediately placed Stuart with the cavalry. Through hard training, Stuart turned his troopers into aggressive scouts and tough warriors. Still, Jeb insisted that this war be fought with flair, and his headquarters developed the reputation as a lively place of song and dance, always with a courtly deference to the ladies. Detractors grumbled about the young officer's flamboyant style, the ostrich-plumed hat, the red-lined cape, the desire to see his name in the papers, and the presence of a few too many of those ladies. But few could argue his effectiveness as a cavalry commander. Stewart catapulted to fame in June 1862 with his daring ride completely around the Union Army that was perched on Richmond's doorstep. Within the next two months, he raided the enemy rear twice, and at the Battle of Second Manassas, he managed to freeze in place a federal corps threatening the Confederate right flank. In October 1862, Stuart repeated his peninsula adventure by riding around the hapless enemy army once again. Stuart followed the Confederate triumph at Fredericksburg with another successful raid. Then, at Chancellorsville, he took over command of Stonewall Jackson's corps after that general's wounding by friendly fire. Commanding infantry in battle for the first time and under incredibly challenging circumstances, Stuart nevertheless, by all accounts, turned in a solid performance. Stuart reportedly wanted, but did not receive, permanent command of Stonewall Jackson's corps after Chancellorsville. Some historians have speculated that what Stuart really wanted 
was the promotion to lieutenant general that would have come with corps command. But regardless, Robert E. Lee kept Stuart where his services would do the most good, in command of the Army's Cavalry Division. Lee needed Jeb Stuart to remain in command of the Army's Cavalry. Stuart had already demonstrated a real gift for carrying out the principal task assigned to Civil War Cavalry, that is, scouting, screening, and raiding. Robert E. Lee often referred to him as, quote, unquote, the eyes and ears of the Army, and had come to depend heavily on Stuart's accurate and timely intelligence reports. All in all, in the days after the Battle of Chancellorsville, the Army of Northern Virginia's cavalry was at its height of strength and effectiveness, and Jeb Stuart was at the zenith of his fame and power. After the Confederate victory at Chancellorsville, Stuart's forces grew, with veteran troopers returning from furloughs with new horses to replace those lost in earlier battles. And with plans to invade Pennsylvania in the works, Robert E. Lee had reinforced Stuart with a brigade of cavalry from North Carolina under the command of Brigadier General Beverly Robertson. Lee also added Brigadier General William Grumble Jones' brigade of horsemen from the Shenandoah Valley. Stuart was happy to have the reinforcements, but not with their commanders. He thought Robertson, quote, the most troublesome man in the army, end quote, and had been glad to see him reassigned to North Carolina. But now Robertson was back, and then there was Grumble Jones, whom Stuart also disliked. The feeling was mutual, as the older, rough-talking, hard-fighting cavalrymen detested the younger, flashier Stuart. In addition to Robertson's and Jones' horsemen, Brigadier General Wade Hampton's brigade came back from detached duty. Also with Stuart were the brigades of Rooney Lee and Fitz Lee, the son and nephew of the Army's commanding general. After the death of the gallant Pelham at Kelly's Ford, the cavalry division's horse artillery was now under the command of Major Robert Beckham. In preparation for Lee's advance northward, the horse artillery was also strengthened, bringing it to five batteries organized in two battalions. All told, Jeb Stewart's five brigades of cavalry and two battalions of horse artillery numbered almost 10,000 men, Encamped in Culpeper County, some 30 miles northwest of Fredericksburg, it was a formidable force, and Stuart was in all his glory commanding it. In fact, on June 8, 1863, the Confederate cavalry commander could be found putting on a grand review of his horse, of his horse soldiers on a plain west of the Rappahannock River, near a whistle stop on the Orange and Alexandria Railroad named Brandy Station. The guest of honor at the review would be none other than Robert E. Lee. Truth be told, this was the third review that Stewart had staged since May 22nd. The first two had more pomp and ceremony, and the one on June 5th had concluded with a spectacular mock battle, with the cavalry charging about and the cannon booming as they fired blank charges. 
However, this third review was a more hastily put together show. Really, it was just for Lee's benefit, since the Army commander had been invited to the second review on June 5th, but missed it. Besides Lee, also in attendance on the 8th would be Corps Commanders James Longstreet and Dick Yule. Then, Fitzlee had invited one of Longstreet's lieutenants, Major General John Bell Hood, and said Hood should feel free, quote, to bring any of his friends, end quote. Well, Hood brought his entire division over, announcing they were all his friends and that he thought he should bring them along. Fitzlee said that was fine, but that Hood shouldn't let his infantrymen mockingly holler, here's your mule, at the Confederate cavalry. At that, Wade Hampton chimed in, warning, if they do, we'll charge you. Hood's infantry settled in to watch the spectacle that was about to unfold before them. Stewart's 22 regiments of horsemen were lined up in double ranks, that stretched across the plain for nearly three miles. Needless to say, it was an impressive sight. After riding along the lines, inspecting the proud rebel troopers, Robert E. Lee took up position on a low rise near the railroad tracks and watched as almost 10,000 sabers flashed in the sunlight, colors flying as the squadrons passed him at the gallop in columns of four. The next morning, General Lee would write to his wife, telling her, quote, Stuart was in all his glory. Unlike the grand review of the 5th, today's didn't include a mock battle, since Robert E. Lee had said that this time there should be no charging about or cannon firing to spare horse flesh and gunpowder. But still, it was an exhausting day for those involved in the spectacle. As one horse artillery officer noted, quote, Reviews are very nice things for lookers-on, but far from pleasant for those concerned, especially if the weather be hot and dusty. When the review was finally over, the tired rebel horse soldiers rode back to their respective camps near Brandy Station. Colonel Tom Munford, who was temporarily in command of Fitz Lee's brigade, since Lee was laid up with rheumatoid arthritis, encamped for the night at Oakshade Church, near the Hazel River, a tributary of the Rappahannock. Meanwhile, Rooney Lee settled in at Welford's farm, while Grumble Jones' brigade encamped near St. James Church, along with the battalion of Beckham's horse artillery. Wade Hampton bivouacked his brigade between Fleetwood Hill and the village of Stevensburg, along with Robertson's brigade. Stewart himself headed over to his headquarters on Fleetwood Hill, which was actually an elevated ridge with a commanding view of the surrounding, rolling countryside and the roads leading north and south from Brandy Station. Stewart was happy with the day's pageantry, but now saw to the final, last-minute preparations that needed tending to so that his command would be ready to move out the very next day. Their stay in Culpeper County was over, and it was time for the rebel cavalry to screen Lee's infantry as the foot soldiers continued to march west, out to the Blue Ridge Mountains, and then down the Shenandoah Valley on their way to Pennsylvania. Jeb Stewart may have been happy with the day's pageantry, but Grumble Jones was far from pleased. In fact, he pointed out that, quote, No doubt the Yankees, who have two divisions of cavalry on the other side of the river, 
have witnessed from their signal stations this show in which Stuart has exposed to view his strength and aroused their curiosity. They will want to know what is going on, and if I am not mistaken, will be over early in the morning to investigate. And he was right. And he was right. Well, kind of. Because although it wasn't for the reason Grumble Jones thought, the Yankee horsemen would nevertheless be coming over the river early in the morning the next day, June 9th, and Jeb Stewart, caught by surprise, would have all the fight on his hands that he could handle. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Spies, Scouts, and Secrets in the Gettysburg Campaign by Thomas J. Ryan. As we said earlier in the show, the subtitle of this book is How the Critical Role of Intelligence Impacted the Outcome of Lee's Invasion of the North, June to July, 1863. And if you're at all interested in this topic, then we highly recommend this book to you. Ryan also presented much the same material in a series of five excellent articles in Gettysburg Magazine, so if you have those issues, then you can dig them out. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find information about joining the Strawfoot Brigade over on Patreon. And we do want to thank the newest members for their support of the podcast. They are Brady, John, Christopher, Jack, Trenton, and Roger. Thanks, y'all. And then as we close in on the end of this show, we also want to thank Spiritwood Music for their permission to use their song, Midnight on the Water, as the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode. And as we do every year when the holiday season arrives, we'll remind you that Spiritwood Music has some lovely Christmas music that you might want to check out. Yep, uh, we always enjoy listening to it at this time of year. Anyway, it's time to say thank you to all of you for tuning in to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time for the start of the action at the Battle of Brandy Station. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Hey everyone, just a reminder that this episode of the podcast was sponsored by Scribner, publisher of Hymns of the Republic, the story of the final year of the Civil War, by Pulitzer Prize finalist S.C. Gwynn. We're happy to team up with Scribner to promote this excellent book, which looks at the pivotal events during the fourth and final year of the Civil War. Gwen has hit another home run here. We enjoyed Hymns of the Republic just as much as the author's excellent biography of Stonewall Jackson, Rebel Yell. Hymns of the Republic is on sale now in hardcover, 
ebook, or audiobook, pick up your copy today.